Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. For the first time ever, a team of researchers have calculated what they call the fossil fuel production gap. This gap is the difference between the fossil fuels that countries are planning to produce in the coming years and the necessary reduction in fossil fuel production required to meet the Paris Climate Agreement goals. The study was co-produced by a number of international nonprofit and research organizations and the United Nations Environment Program. The lead partner on this report was the Stockholm Environment Institute. And on the line with me is a scientist from the Stockholm Environment Institute, Peter Erickson. We kick off discussing the concept of a production gap before having a longer conversation about the report's findings and why this report is such an important contribution to our collective understanding of actions that need to be taken in order to limit greenhouse gas emissions. This is a great conversation. I love it when scientists are able to discuss in, in layman's terms and in policy terms the importance of their research, and Peter Erickson certainly does that very well in this episode. I think you will enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by the Masters in Peace and Justice program at the Joan B. Kroc School of Peace Studies at the University of San Diego. This program is designed for individuals seeking knowledge, skills, and practical experience to address a wide range of peace and social justice issues, including hands-on field-based opportunities in Rwanda, Colombia, and Mexico. The program prepares students for careers in conflict resolution, human rights, social entrepreneurship, education development, and advocacy. No GRE is required to apply, and part-time options are available. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace to learn more. And this episode is brought to you by Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more, or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. And now here is my conversation with Peter Erickson, Senior Scientist with the Stockholm Environment Institute. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The production gap is the difference between what fossil fuels countries are planning on producing and what they would need to produce in a low-carbon scenario that met the goals of the Paris Agreement. In other words, that limited temperature increases, that limited global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And it's 1.5 degrees Celsius by like when, by what year? 
um, over pre compared to pre-industrial levels. So the goals of the Paris Agreement are uh, to limit warming compared to pre-industrial levels. So the late 1800s. And the idea then behind your report is to look at what major um, emitters are producing in terms of, of fossil fuels and what their planned scenarios in the future for producing those fossil fuels are, correct? Yeah, that's right. The climate problem is usually framed with regards to emissions, um, that is greenhouse gas emissions, carbon dioxide emissions, uh, and it's not is often framed in terms of the major source of those emissions, which are fossil fuels. Fossil fuels represent about three quarters of all greenhouse gas emissions, um, whether through burning those fossil fuels or through extracting them, like the methane that that is often released when fossil fuels are extracted. So the unique contribution of this report, of the production gap report, is to look at the climate problem from the perspective of its main source, fossil fuels, and therefore fossil fuel production. And so what did you find? We found that that government plans, and by government plans I mean you know what the energy ministries say, uh, in, in different countries. So um, we're talking here in the United States. The United States Department of Energy makes plans and, and forecasts for what fossil fuels it expects to be extracted within the country. Um, so we looked at what the major fossil fuel producers, government ministries were planning with regards to fossil fuels. We added that all up globally and we compared to the pathways Instead, that scientists, that that is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or the IPCC, what they have found um, we should instead be pursuing. In other words, the, the levels of fossil fuel productions under a low-carbon pathway. And did you and, do this for, like, many countries in the world? I mean, it seems like a huge endeavor to ask yeah. every ministry our, of energy around the world. No, indeed. Our, I mean, our goal was to come up with um, a first cut at credible estimates for the whole world. Uh, and so we basically just went down the list in terms of top fossil fuel producers um, and reached out to native language speakers uh, in those countries and – did the best we could to find original government source documents um, in those com countries. So in the end, we were able to get coverage of about 60% of global fossil fuel production, and we made some simplifying assumptions for the other 40% that they would basically be following um, similar pathways to this 40%. But so it, our, yeah. So, so what, what's the big takeaway? What, what's the yeah, top our big line headline, finding? A big headline finding is that countries are planning on producing more than twice as many fossil fuels in 2030 as they would be under a scenario that held warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Uh, not, not, not exactly the right pathway. It's not at all the right pathway. Uh, countries are, I mean, essentially planning to try to, you know, get their share to 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 keep producing fossil fuels far beyond what we what we need to be doing. Now, are there countries that are driving this gap uh, more than others? Like who who are who what which countries that you were able to survey and collect data on were most contributing to this gap? Yeah, that's a great question. And and 
we tried not to point too many fingers in this initial report. I mean, this is the first report of its kind that has has done this, um, and there are all kinds of considerations. You know, when you when you think about who who should do what to solve climate change, all kinds of questions about equity and capabilities to act come into it. So. I want to be clear that we're not saying uh, any one country should do anything in in particular. We're not making specific recommendations, but nonetheless, the the facts speak for themselves in terms of who the largest fossil fuel producers are and who uh, what countries are planning to increase production the most. And I mean, at the top of that list is the United States, uh, where we are here, where not only is the U.S. the top oil producer, the top gas producer, the top, uh, sorry, second largest coal producer, uh, but it's planning to increase its production under a banner, as you may know, of energy dominance. There are certainly other countries as well that are planning on increasing production. What's interesting about your report, too, is that there are other countries, you know, the United States, you know, under the Trump administration is trying to pull out of the Paris Agreement. Um, You know, it's not a country that other countries necessarily look to for leadership on climate issues, at least we should say at, at the federal level. But there are other countries that are named in your report, like, say, Canada, that have made, you know, substantial pledges to decrease um you know, their emissions and their fossil fuel production for domestic use, but are still way over, are still contributing significantly to that gap because they're, they're selling uh, their fossil fuels overseas, right? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, take Canada. It's a, it's a good example of a country that really plays an important leadership role globally. It's a very constructive country in the international negotiations around climate. It has made some important strides in terms of reducing its own emissions and in bringing countries together around the table to create robust agreements that reduce emissions in the long term. And yet there is this great paradox with the country where it is uh, it's it's got these oil sands deposits in especially in the province of Alberta, and the you know the national government and the Alberta government are dead set on developing these resources, uh, even as so doing would contribute to this production gap that we identify. And so, taking a step back, like why is it important? Why is it significant that? you know, we know about this production gap that we can sort of quantify a, a production gap in terms of, of fossil fuels. The reason it's important is that if it's not quantified in fossil fuel terms like we do here, it becomes too easy for it to not be part of the conversation. I mean this quite literally and at all all levels uh, that this conversation could take place. I often go to the international climate negotiations, and sometimes in that role, I get to meet with delegations of countries. Those countries are making pledges to reduce their emissions, but if they're not also making pledges to reduce their fossil fuel production, they're leaving a lot of ambition and a lot of necessary action on the table. So it's important for the international negotiations to talk about the climate problem for what it is. It's a fossil fuel problem. 
And to be more specific about that, because it opens up new opportunities for countries to take more aggressive action and to, in the words of the international negotiation, quote, enhance ambition. That's the, the language being used there. Uh, the Paris Agreement, for example, which is the landmark agreement that we're, that the international regime is currently operating in, doesn't mention the word coal, doesn't mention the word oil or gas or fossil fuels. That's a missed opportunity. The other reason I think it's important to quantify this production gap and have the, the broader, more popular conversation be uh, just as much about fossil fuels as it is about greenhouse gas emissions is that talking about the climate problem as fossil fuels is, to be frank, more intelligible to the average person. I think people understand that coal, that oil, that gas are the main contributor to climate change and that it's that um, it's the production and burning of those fuels that we need to address. It also localizes the the problem in many cases where people are more likely to show up to public meetings, to write letters to the editor, to engage in the democratic process when there are fossil fuel proposals in their backyard, uh, in some cases quite literally. Yeah, that's literally so, the case here where I'm recording in, yeah. in Colorado, where there are a number of um, you know, of, 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 of fracking operations going on and, and local city councils sometimes pass ordinances trying to ban fracking in their localities, which, you know, causes it's, it's an uproar. But at least, as you said, it, it sort of does drive the conversation, I think, in a very concrete and, and localized way. It does. And, and you know, too often uh, some of those local actions are met with condescension from the the broader climate policy community who's sort of lectured us for years about the very valid scientific point that it's that emissions are the main problem um, at the same point at the same time most of those emissions come from fossil fuels and if members of the public are motivated to engage around the issue of fossil fuels we all should see that as wind at our back uh, and use that to build a broader constituency for um, moving towards a low carbon economy. So what opportunities are there for, say, multilateral cooperation um, on solutions to reducing fossil fuel, both extraction and, and production, in line with, with you know, the, the Paris Climate Agreement goals and ambitions? It's an area where I think there's a lot of room for more thought and more research, more scholarship, and of course, more international diplomacy. It, within the context of the, the, the climate negotiations per se, that is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, there's a clear opportunity for countries to just start folding fossil fuel production into the pledges that they already make into the negotiations. Um, for example, next year in 2020, as part of the negotiations, countries are going to be asked to make revised 
um, pledges, essentially, what are called nationally determined contributions. And countries could, in that process, announce plans to limit their fossil fuel production. But international relations, international diplomacy on this issue need not be confined to the, the climate convention. Uh, it could happen in any other number of, of fora or of venues. There's a, an idea, it's a, it's a nascent idea, but one that's gaining steam of some sort of fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty that would be modeled uh, or at least take inspiration from previous efforts on, on nuclear disarmament. And there, there could well be you know, momentum started by countries uh, you know, voluntarily saying they're going to forego fossil fuel development and having that build into some sort of uh, club or group of countries, whether that be um, under a, an official treaty or more likely to start just through, um, you know, sort of normal diplomatic channels. I can see that having the effect of like stigmatizing fossil fuel production far more than it currently is. It's certainly possible. I mean, I think that is the kind of uh, thinking that that could inspire uh, a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. So one thing that uh, Antonio Guterres kept coming back to at the most recent UN General Assembly in which climate was a big focus was um, this idea of, of trying to get governments to cease to subsidize fossil fuel industry, as, as he says it, pronounces it in English in his Portuguese accent, which I don't think is mm -hmm. too much of an accident. He calls it fossil fools. Um, <laughs> and, and so what, I mean, is there any actual momentum there in any major emitting country or major production co uh, country to reduce or eliminate government subsidies for fossil fuel production? There is some momentum. There are certainly there are important commitments to be made, or, or that have been made rather under both the G7 uh, and G20 groups of countries com have committed to phasing out fossil fuel subsidies. Countries in the G7 committed to do so um, by a, a fixed year. I think it was 2025. Um, you can check that. But it, the momentum on that has been slow, to be frank. There are other um, organizations that are tracking that more closely than I am. Um, but, you know, there have been some successes. There's, there, was, there were some subsidies removed in Canada, for example. There were recently some fossil fuel subsidies removed in Argentina. Um, at the same time, there's often backsliding, too. I mean, take the Canada example. The national government bought an oil pipeline. Um, if that's not a subsidy, I don't know what is. Um, so we're speaking on the eve of COP25 in Madrid. You know, it's supposed to be in, in, in Chile, uh, except the protest there is forced to change a venue. So, uh, you know, international negotiations, the next big round of international negotiations are happening in Madrid in the come, you know, just a few days after we're speaking. Uh, number one, are fossil fuels on the agenda at all in this upcoming COP, COP25? Uh, number two, more broadly, what will you be looking for uh, coming from this, this meeting? And what can more general audiences expect to happen at this meeting? Good question. Uh, in terms of the actual agenda and the formal 
negotiations. I would say fossil fuels are not specifically on the agenda. What's on the agenda for COP in Madrid are negotiations around carbon markets, around something called a loss and damage mechanism, uh, and some discussion of the the IPCC's, that is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, reports. But the negotiations, the the conference of the parties that's happening in Madrid uh, also serves a much broader role that isn't just about those formal negotiations. Countries are doing all kinds of um, discussions on the side. They're signaling intentions. They're creating broader political momentum for the low carbon future that they're trying to enact. And so in that regard, one of the main things to to watch out for, I think, and that I'll be looking for is around these um, these new round of pledges that are going to happen next year in 2020. These are the nationally determined contributions, or you sometimes hear the acronym NDC. Though there's also the the what's called the long-term strategies, which are supposed to be um, those are voluntary, but they are um, also due uh, next year, and they are intended to for countries to provide a, some insight into what they expect to be doing by mid-century, say by by 2050. So, I'll be looking for uh, well, first the ambition of of both these. NDCs, these pledges, and the long-term strategies on the emission side. In other words, are countries ready to step up and and go with deeper emission pledges? But I'll be especially curious to see how fossil fuels enter that conversation. Um, you know, I think our production gap report has helped change the conversation around that. I don't think it's that's that's too. That's too immodest to, to say so. I mean, we saw uh, Patricia Espinosa, the executive secretary of the UNFCCC, tweeting out that countries should take uh, this new report into consideration as they're preparing their climate action plans and their new new pledges. So it's just a tweet, um, but presumably she's saying the same thing when she meets with countries. So I'll be very keen to see that. I'm also going to be... No, 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 go on, go on. Go I'm, I'm interested. This, this, that, that, that's just it's it's interesting. And just to to emphasize your point, I have seen a lot of um, talk about this report uh, in the media. It's it's one of the reasons I wanted to to reach out to you about it. Just I was just very surprised to see how deeply it seemed to have resonated, uh, at least among the UN audiences that that I follow. That's great to hear, and and we're we're thrilled at that. We're thrilled that UN Environment Program co-released this report with us. Um, and I think everybody's ready to talk about the climate problem for what it is, uh, a fossil fuel problem. So we're, we're just thrilled at, at that and with the media coverage of it. What I wanted to say about Spain is I'll, I'll be really curious to see whether Spain being the new host, at least geographic host of the meetings, because Spain has been one of the few countries that has been more of a leader on this issue than any others. What I mean by that is that Spain is announcing a phase out of their coal industry, and they're doing that under a, 
a framework of a just transition, even a Green New Deal, where they're trying to create a lot of economic and social supports for those communities that uh, produce fossil fuels and might, and that might otherwise struggle with a path away from fossil fuels. Huh. And so they're they're sort of they're trying to create this framework that perhaps other might be a model for other countries. Indeed. And, and countries need those kind of models to say, you know, how did you do that? Uh, how did you create the policies? How did you work with those communities um, to secure their support for a transition? Uh, it's one of the, the things that, you know, government diplomats that civil service, civil um, service uh, government government employees when they meet on the sidelines of these meetings the kinds of things they talk about the kinds of experiences they want to share um, so finally as a scientist who has studied this issue for a long time in putting together this report is there like a finding or even like a detail that uniquely stood out to you or perhaps surprised you It's okay to say no. You know it all. You're the scientist. You know what? Here's what surprised me the, the most, or rather, what what I didn't have any clear, obvious intuition uh, going into this, and that is that 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 gas production, um, natural gas, or Perhaps fossil gas is a is a better term for it, but even gas needs to reduce starting now to meet a 1.5 degree target of the Paris Agreement. Um, you know, most people in this in this climate want community get that coal needs to go down rapidly, uh, immediately. That oil needs to be phased out pretty rapidly as well. Gas has, in at least the popular conversation, always occupied this sort of gray area um, because it's believed that gas is better than coal, and it is in most cases, but gas also can be, competes with renewable low-carbon power. Uh, and when we dug into the IPCC, um, that is the scientific scenarios about how fast coal, oil, and gas would need to phase out. It turns out that gas needs to be phasing out uh, starting immediately as well. And so that's where the production gap, you know, kind of kind of hurts the worst, I, I guess, or is, is most surprising um, to me. Yeah, even natural gas, which which was you know seen and, and and promoted for a long time as this like transition between fossil fuels and renewable energies, even even natural gas needs to to stop post haste. Yeah, that's that's right, and I think that's the the thing that I hope is perhaps you know sticks s sticks the most, or at least one of the most important takeaways from our from our report. Well, well, thank you so much for your time, Peter, and thank you so much for this report. It's great. Thank, thank you, Mark. It's great to have a chance to talk about it more. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Peter. That was great. And, and as I said at the outset, a very good example of a scientist very effectively explaining his or her work to a broader audience. Thank you for that, Peter. 
All right, we will see you next time. As always, be in touch. Send me a note using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com if you have suggestions of people you want me to interview or topics you'd like me to cover. I always love hearing from you. And this episode, in fact, came at the suggestion of a listener. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.